today's sermon will come to you in seven parts. Part one, I am the Grinch who stole Christmas. On November 5th at 1.24 in the morning, I came home to find that Wilson had erected and lit our Christmas tree. <laughs> Wilson was elated. I was not. At the very earliest, Christmas starts the day after Thanksgiving. I, of course, quickly shared this uh, event on Facebook and hid the tree where it could not be seen. Wilson was preparing our hearts and our home for Christmas, and I was not having any of it. Part two, why Advent is an appropriate time to start Christmas. <laughs> the season of Advent begins four Sundays before Christmas and ends on Christmas Eve. It's only 28 days long and not 50, as my partner would have you all believe. <laughs> the word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, meaning coming. So it's during this time that we prepare for and anticipate the coming of Jesus. We remember our longing for a Messiah and our longing for forgiveness, salvation, and a new beginning. With pornographic levels of consumption, in which our credit card debt rises and our waistbands expand, we're overdue to turn our attention back to the most precious gift we have ever received, the good news that God is with us. Over the next few weeks, um, we at Mosaic plan to celebrate Advent by taking a look at some of the people who helped prepare the way for Jesus' coming. And today, we'll be talking about the prophet Isaiah. Part three. I wasn't always a Christian. At the assistance of my grandmother, I grew up Catholic. I went to Catholic school all my life, even during that year that my parents thought it would be really fun to live in West Virginia. <laughs> and like any good Catholic, my relationship was with institutional rules. So the moment I could flee from them, I did. The Jesus I was offered was this really angry dude who was mad he had to die on the cross for me. So I'd better not grow up to be gay or miss church even one Sunday for fear of upsetting him further. For years, I was a militant atheist who rejected religion as the opiate of the masses and preyed on those who I thought were weak-minded. Surely, their Jesus could not save them from my intellect. Now, I never thought I needed a savior. I was very vocal about that. So one day about six years ago, my dear friend interrupted my pessimistic list and asked me to go to church with her. And uh, I think my exact words were, no. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, she tried for a few weeks, and I declined every time. I remember her saying that I would get a lot out of it, to which I smugly replied, I don't need you or your Jesus, so leave me alone. And really, I mean, what would I have gotten out of it? I was already a good person. I was nice to people. I volunteered at the aid store, and I recycled. <laughs> But as the psalmist wrote, deep calls to deep, and even though I knew I didn't need a savior, a part of me still knew that there was some greater goodness out there than what I had so far experienced. So when my friend finally said, if you come to church with me, I will take you out to brunch afterwards. <laughs> I looked her up and down, and I said, what time are you picking me up? <laughs> my life started changing. All of a sudden, one day, I wasn't angry anymore. I'm still cynical, don't get me wrong, but at least I'm not angry. I lost like 40 pounds, that was kind of cool. Uh, owning my God-given sense of, uh, of worth really did wonders. I started developing meaningful friendships, and I have a way better relationships with, uh, with my parents now than I ever did before. Joy blossomed around me, and peace, and love, and acceptance, and freedom. 
I still come into rough patches like everyone else, but they're not as bad as they used to be. Uh, fast forward to today, in spite of common sense and logic, I've left my job as a manager at a bank to work part-time at the church. <laughs> I'm looking forward to using my experiences as a cynical, hurting, disenfranchised, former militant atheist <laughs> to help others get to know a God who is far more radical than the one I ran from for so long. Part four, why the desert isn't such a bad place. At this year's Philadelphia Flower Show, I became the most senior junior park ranger. <laughs> oh, and Wilson did too. <laughs> but I, uh, I stumbled across this exhibit um, where the description read, when conditions are just right, the parched earth of Death Valley springs to life in a fleeting display of spectacular wildflowers, carpeting the desolate landscape in every direction. Now the prophet Isaiah has been saying this for years. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and bloom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. Without ha ever having been to the desert, I seem to know exactly how this was possible. Like in some weird metaphorical way, my life was like a desert. Uh, we all face a desert, of course, and you know what yours is. Uh, the promise here isn't that you're actually going to get through this as if from uh, one side to the other or east to west, but the actual ground you stand on will be transformed. New life will blossom around you. And if your desert is so arid and so dry that you think it will never be able to support life. I've got some news for you. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. God is making a way to you. You don't have to wait for conditions to be just right. Conditions are right right now. You don't have to irrigate the land as if all your labor could earn you even more of God's favor. You don't even have to map your way out of whatever mess you think you've gotten yourself into. You need only open your hearts to the possibility that God is doing something new and beautiful within you. Let God make a way through the wilderness of your complexities. Let there be a stream forging through the toughest soil of doubt. And it's not easy uh, to clear away in the wasteland there has to be some processing and clearing of rubble, but that yields to uh, more ground for growth. Let God tend to you. Uh, even Jesus faced a desert and needed to be tended to. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that Jesus was there 40 days and 40 nights being tempted by the devil. After his final temptation, Jesus said, away from me, Satan. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. When you're feeling uh, tempted to give into those patterns that cause you to feel stranded in the desert, make Jesus' words here your prayer. Away from me, self-doubt. Jesus, tend to me. Take a deep breath in. Away from me, insecurity. And breathe out. Jesus, tend to me. Why don't we all try this together? Let's close our eyes. And think about all the rubble that's in your wasteland. 
Now take a moment to name it and let God transform it. Breathe in, away from me, suspicion. Breathe out, Jesus, tend to me. Breathe in, away from me. And out, Jesus, tend to me. Let's come back together. The explanation of the exhibit that I saw continued saying, towering rainstorms bring forth vast fields of wildflowers. Lush oases harbor tiny fish and refuge for wildlife and humans. Despite its morbid name, there is a great diversity of life in Death Valley. Even in the valley of death, life abounds. That promise is for you too. Part five, God is doing something different through Jesus. The prophet Isaiah lived uh, about six to 700 years before Jesus' birth. The folks in Jesus' time understood that each nation worshiped its own God and how well that nation did showed their God's power. God gained glory when Israel won battles against nations that worshiped false gods. And the goal of all of God's activity uh, was to expand God's reign over all the world until one day no other gods were worshiped anywhere. So people thought that when the savior came, he would look like this dude and destroy Israel's enemies and judge all its sinners. <laughs> but that's a real picture on Google. If you search like military Jesus, like this comes up with a slew of others. But, um, but Isaiah sees things differently. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Who is this king of glory with no majesty? He's unrecognizable from the God of the Old Testament and the God of my 2016 American culture who promises a smiting of enemies. I mean, surely victory is promised over all those who would seek to do harm. But that's not the savior we got. God sees our proclivity for violence and says, enough, more violence will never save you from your addiction to violence. This violence has been in us uh, since Cain killed Abel. The thing in us that wishes to destroy our enemy is actually destroying us, and it always has. So we don't need any more kings of vengeance or kings of worldly power or kings of closing the border. We need a king in a cradle. And how amazing is it that the human body is what God chose, on, chose to take on to be with us? We need a God whose love came to us in delicate, unprotected, unarmed, defenseless, newborn flesh who submitted to the very worst thing that humans are capable of, the thing capable of betrayal and flogging, of vengeance and even murder. Isaiah sees the hope, though. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, 
He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his words we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What we need is not a king with the best battle plan. We don't need a president who knows how to keep everyone out. We don't need a leader who wins at the violence and retribution cycle. We need a Lord who refuses to play that game at all. He's not a defender, he's not a cop, a protector, a soldier, a secretary of state. He's our savior. Part six, a really long story and what I think you should get out of it. So I wanna take a few minutes to, uh, and tell the story of Jesus' birth. Whether this is your first time hearing the story or you've heard it so many times before, uh, know that this story is still for you uh, because God loves you and wants to be close to you. So I've invited our friend Joy to help us uh, recall the story of how the birth of Jesus came about. Let me tell you a story, y'all. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And because Joseph was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose Mary to public disgrace, he had in mind to quietly divorce her. But an angel appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus. Because he'll save his people from their sins. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So everyone had to go to their own town to register. Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. And he went to register with Mary, who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, and she laid him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them in the town of Bethlehem. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks, and an angel appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause joy for all of the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born, and he is the Messiah. He is the Lord, and this will be your sign. You will find a small baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God 
in the highest, and on earth, peace to all of those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left and got back up into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried and they found Mary and Joseph and the tiny baby who was wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem during the time of King Herod, Magi from far away in the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star and we followed it. We've come to worship him. After they'd spoken with King Herod, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they found the child with its mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. And they opened their treasure boxes and they presented the child with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But they had been warned in a dream not to go back to King Herod. And so they returned safely to their country by another route. Thank you. Let's just sit with that for a moment. Um, There's a lot there, and I just want to give you a moment to reflect on that and uh, process it a little bit. I will admit that it's intellectually suspicious to believe in such a fantastical story as the birth of Jesus. We have the creator of the universe coming out of heaven, leaving a realm we can't begin to fathom where time holds no sway, being born relatively unannounced in a barn in Bethlehem to a virgin. There's talks of angels and visiting wise men. There's a big blinking star overhead, and people are having some pretty crazy dreams about what they should do or not do. All of this we accept as truth. Maybe the beauty of Christmas is that in spite of everything we have seen or experienced, and in spite of everything we know to be empirically true about the way the world works, we have a God who says, Forget what you know. I'm doing something new. Clear away, y'all. I'm coming down there. (laughs) Whatever boundary that existed between God and humanity is overcome in Jesus' birth. And now our humanity is a thing that we share with God. God is with us in our longings. God is with us in our triumphs. God is with us in our suffering, our laughter, our boredom 
God is there when we can't sleep, when we've had a great day, when the baby is crying and we just don't know why. God is there when we call out, when we need a friend. And because God came to us in the person of Jesus, we know God understands all of what we go through because God went through it too. The promise of Christmas is that God is with us. Part seven. A recap of the last six parts. <laughs> and a blessing. Make space for Jesus. Look for the good news amidst all the crap. Food is the best way to get anyone to do anything. <laughs> Open your hearts to the possibility that God can transform you. Jesus doesn't care about your expectations, but will likely exceed them. And God is with you. A blessing from Isaiah 43. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>